Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have blessed us this week and this evening to gather together in this place and at this time to sing your word back to you, O God, to strengthen one another by the word and promises that you have made known to us as your people, and to study your word, O God, to be taught by your Holy Spirit and to be sanctified by your word, which is truth. O God, we do thank you for the blessings of this week, for the work that you've given us to do, for the help that you have given us in all of our activities, for the mercy and kindness you have shown to us, O Lord, the forgiveness that you provide to us moment by moment every day, though we fall short of your glory, and for the grace that has fueled our faith and our gratitude thus far. We do ask, O Lord, that you would bless our nation where you have called us to live and to sojourn. Grant unto these United States repentance, O God, and true revival from above. Cause the people of this land to be persuaded of your word and by your word to bow the knee to Jesus as King and to be obedient to him, knowing that your word is for our good always. We pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom to rule in the fear of you and that you would restrain the folly and wickedness of those who do not fear you. Raise up men who will lead us in good and godly ways. Bless your church, O God. Reform her, strengthen her, beautify and sanctify her in every place, in every land throughout this world. We pray that you would make us more and more in the likeness of Jesus, your Son and our King, and that you would cause us to be a bright and bold witness of His Lordship and of the saving grace that you have provided in Him to all of the nations. Bless our own congregation, Lord, our elders, our deacons, those who serve us, those who teach and volunteer and help in so many ways. Bless us that we would love one another, that we would patiently support and encourage each other, and that we would grow in faith and hope and cheerfulness. Oh God, that we would grow in the grace of godliness and good works. Bless those who are sick. We pray that you would strengthen and help them, especially those of our number and those whom we know and love in other places. And please comfort those who grieve, encourage those who are discouraged, strengthen all those who are going through trials. Bless our children and our children's children with faith and with uh, uh, faithfulness throughout their lives. We pray that you would bless us tonight as we open your word together, that you would stretch our minds, that you would improve our understanding of your truth, that you would help us to grow and to be grateful for what you have caused us to know. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to uh, start with two passages of Scripture, one of which we sang last week and the other of which we referred to. So I'm going to read Psalm 19, verses 7 to 14, and then from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So Psalm 19 and 2 Timothy 3, if you want to turn there or you can just listen as I read. While you're turning there, if you are, we have two handouts in the back that look similar Uh, One of them is a simple uh, long-form summary page, and the other is a more expansive outline. And so uh, you have already picked those up, or you can pick those up uh, as uh, as you like. Uh, We're continuing our study of Christian ethics that we began last week. We'll do just a little bit of review as we begin, but first let's hear from God's Word. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. 
The statutes of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my strength and my Redeemer. And then in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 and continue down through the first five verses of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Thus far, God's Word. Now, if I could point out a couple of things that are probably obvious to you, but I will point them out nonetheless. In the first passage that we read in Psalm 19, we have a series of descriptions. This is parallelism. You'll remember that's what makes Hebrew poetry poetic, is the parallelism. It's not the rhyme. It's not the meter, but the parallel. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on and so forth. And in each of these cases, the first noun of description, the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, the judgments, are all describing the same thing. They're all describing the Word of God, the law of God. And in a more expansive way than just what we sometimes think of as the law. We think of the law as the Ten Commandments, or we think of the law as the particular set of commandments that God gave to Israel in the Mosaic economy, 613 commandments that the rabbis organized. And uh, we think of that as the law. Well, that is the law, but the law of the Lord is more expansive than that. And sometimes when Scripture refers to the law of God, it's referring just kind of narrowly to the moral standards and commandments that God has given to particular people at particular places and times. But sometimes it's referring to the Word of God. And this here is the Word of God encompassing His will and expressing His will for our lives. And it says this law is precious, it's powerful, it's efficacious, it's sweet, it's, uh, it's valuable. It warns us, verse 11, 
and it rewards us, or God does, as we seek to keep uh, those commands. And then in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, you'll notice that you have three different descriptions of this same word. So, for example, in verse 15, the Holy Scriptures. And again, in verse 16, Scripture, all Scripture. And then, verse 2 of chapter 4, the Word. Now, what's interesting to me is that the emphasis here is on God's Word as it has been revealed and as it is then presented to the people of God, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Paul could have said to Timothy, preach the truth. That that would have been appropriate, but he didn't say that. He could have said, preach the gospel. And he kind of does when he says, do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is a herald of the good news, right? The evangel, right? So, uh, but, but he doesn't say, preach the gospel. He says, preach the word. What is the word? It's the scripture. It's the holy scriptures. And that holy scripture made known to God's people is able to make them wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That was true in the Old Testament when David was writing about the Hebrew Bible. That's true in the New Testament as Paul is commanding Timothy to preach as an evangelist of Jesus Christ. And of course, what scripture does Paul primarily have in mind in 2 Timothy 3 and 4? He primarily has in mind what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament scriptures are still being written. He's aware of the fact that there is scripture being written. He's going to refer to that, and Peter is going to refer to Paul's words as scripture in his own writings. But, but nevertheless, the body of scripture that they have at that time is what we would call the Hebrew Bible, or its Greek translation, the Old Testament. And yet that scripture was given to God's people to make them wise so that they might enjoy salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, last week we had what you might think is kind of an inauspicious beginning, and you might have come here tonight wondering which of Plato's dialogues is Pastor Joel going to talk about this evening. And I thought about talking about the Gorgias, which is actually a fascinating dialogue, right? Another Socratic dialogue. But I decided, nope, we're not going to do that. No, we're going to press on on the original plan as we talk about Christian ethics. So last week, we talked a little bit about the Euthyphro dilemma. This classic question coming out of one of Plato's dialogues, Euthyphro, in which Socrates, on his way to the court, meets this young man, very self-righteous, very self-confident, who is there to indict his father for murder. And that leads to a discussion of justice and of holiness. What is piety? How are we to know what is right and wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false? And that discussion has been kind of reframed in an explicitly Christian way and has continued to go on for the 2,400 years since it was originally written down. And we talked about the fact that Christianity alone can adequately answer the Euthyphro dilemma by pointing out that, first of all, it's a false dilemma. Uh, The two possibilities that Socrates posits, either the gods, uh, either what is holy is holy because the gods say so, and it's, and it's based on nothing other than them naming it as such. Or, what is holy is loved by the gods because it is previously, externally, independently holy. And we said either of those entails a host of problems, both moral and theological. But Christianity says, no, that's a false dilemma. It's positing two potential options, neither of which are true. There is a third way. 
We also said that the Euthyphro dilemma cannot be answered in the context of polytheism, where you have a multitude of gods who don't agree on what justice is, who don't agree even within themselves in terms of their behavior. They're not consistent with the values that they might say that they would be willing to uphold. We said that only in Christianity do you have an adequate resolution of this problem. Because goodness, justice, holiness, righteousness is itself the revealed character of God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And we are to walk in the light, that light of the Lord. We know what holiness is. We know what righteousness is because God has made himself known. So we know goodness by knowing the one who is good. Goodness is to be understood personally rather than just abstractly. And we said that revelation was necessary. God has revealed his nature, his character in the works of creation and providence, in writing the law upon the heart of every person who is an image bearer of God, but also specially and most clearly in the scriptures. And that brings us then tonight to what will occupy us for the next three weeks that remain in this very short series. Uh, On the first handout that you have, you have a 12-point summary. And on the other handout, you have the first four of those points drawn out in outline. Now, what we're going to use is, as a basic outline, 12 points that come from Dr. Greg Bonson's uh, essay in this work, Five Views on Law and Gospel, and I've got that in a footnote if you want to pick that up. It has five essays from five different Christian scholars who are talking about how they reconcile law and gospel, and Dr. Bonson is one of the five, and then they interact with each other's essays. It might be a little bit heavy reading for some of you, so I'm not just recommending everybody rush out and purchase that, but if you kind of geek out on that sort of thing, that might be a a fun book to pick up. At the end of Dr. Bonson's essay, he gives us a 12-point summary that he believes frames a comprehensive Christian ethic. And this is kind of an expansion of something that he had written earlier for the second preface to his kind of magnum opus, the Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Uh, These 12 points, when I first ran across them, I found to be tremendously helpful. And I told the elders several months ago, I want to do a Sunday school class on that. Well, Sunday school has not materialized, but Wednesday night we did have an opportunity to do it, and so that's what we're doing. We're going to look at four of these points over each of the next three weeks as, as a way of understanding how do we get then from the, I, the basic ideas that we dealt with last week. What is goodness? What is righteousness? How do we know what holiness is? We know it in relation to the, God's self-revelation. God has revealed himself as goodness, and we know goodness by knowing him. How do we get from there to actually uh, understanding in Scripture what it is that we are to do? And that is what these 12 points are going to help us to understand. Now, Dr. Greg Bonson was uh, a scholar. He was a philosopher, had done his Ph.D. at the University of Southern California. He was also a minister in the OPC, was a minister in our presbytery, as a matter of fact, but became in many ways, while admittedly brilliant, somewhat of a lightning rod. Because during his life and the influence of his ministry as he was building on the work of other men, such as uh, R.J. Rushdoony, who was also an OPC minister, um, uh, theonomy became a very controversial idea. And I would tell you that even to this day, 
in the OPC and other Reformed churches, it's a very controversial idea. And part of that is because of certain ideas about what theonomy represents that may or may not always be accurate. You know, theonomy is kind of a term like Calvinism. Everybody assumes they know what it means, and many times what they assume about what it means is not actually the case. So you probably don't go to your neighbor, and the first thing you do is say, hi, my name is Joel, and I'm a Calvinist, right? Because you can imagine if they know anything about Calvinism, they're going to immediately have a misimpression about who you are. Uh, Dr. Bonson, in his writings, when he would talk about theonomy, he would point out that uh, theonomists really weren't looking for any kind of a new term or a new category because as far as they could tell, they were simply taking the view that Calvin and the Westminster Assembly had, that earlier the medieval church had had, that some in the ancient church had affirmed. Now, their critics, of course, would deny that, although, interestingly, some of their critics even acknowledged that, that, yes, in fact, this was the basic view of Calvin. This was the basic view of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But they would say it's a wrong view, and so we need to reject it. What I want to show you, without getting into the weeds of that kind of theological debate and controversy, what I want to show you over the next three weeks is that of these 12 points that we're going to examine and look at from Scripture, really there's not more than two or three of them that ought to even raise a question in the minds of any Christian who's committed to the authority of Scripture. There might be two or three points that you kind of scratch your head and say, I don't, does that follow? I never thought about it that way. Is that really what the Bible teaches? And then you can wrestle with that, and we'll wrestle together at some of the scriptural proofs of these positions. But what I want you to see is that in a, in a real way, all Christians who take the Bible seriously as the authoritative word of God are in some sense theonomic. What is theonomy? Well, theonomy is just a combination of two Greek words, theos and nomos, which mean God and law. And instead of being autonomous, self-ruled, governed by our self-law, we recognize that God is the foundation of law. We believe that God's law is the foundation of morality. It's the foundation of what is good and right and true. So that's at the most basic level, what theonomy refers to. It refers to God's law. Now, of course, critics of theonomy will say, well, yes, but that term has come to take upon itself a host of other implications. Yes, we all believe that we should follow God's law, but we don't believe about that what some theonomists might say. Well, that's, that's a fair criticism. You could say that maybe that term evolved to a point beyond which you or other Christians might be comfortable affirming. But as we go through this summary, I'm going to ask you whether, in fact, that is the case. Because as we go through the summary, I think you'll notice that most of what is being said here should not be controversial. And, and really, at the end of the day, I don't think that much of it is. Tonight, I want to look at the first four of these points. I've given you some quotes as well from uh, a couple of quotes from Dr. Bonson's essay in the same book from which the summary is drawn. And he wrote voluminously on this topic. So this is, that essay is a good starting point, but it's my, by no means the final word. Uh, it's a really good summary of the position. And also give you a quote from Calvin that we'll come to uh, in just a little while. I'll tell you that so that if you get bored with what I'm saying, you can just turn the page over and start reading and just ignore me for a little bit. All right, so Dr. Bonson writes these 12 summary points to lay out a theonomic approach 
to God's law. And what he's basically saying is, human society should be governed according to the Word of God. I mean, like most of us would say, well, yeah, what's controversial so far? He would say, all of the Word of God. Well, okay, maybe, maybe so. Like, I mean, I don't know if he does he mean that we're all supposed to go out and build an ark in our backyard. Well, no, he doesn't mean that, right? We recognize that there are certain laws that God gave to particular people at particular places at particular times. And oh, by the way, we recognize that God did that with Israel historically. Israel had a tabernacle and then a temple and a Levitical priesthood and an altar of burnt offering and various laws concerning their diet, concerning their clothing, concerning how they planted their fields, all kinds of regulations of their society, many of which have been fulfilled in Christ in such a way as to be altogether transformed and no longer binding upon the church. What Dr. Bonson would lay out and what I think much of our Reformed tradition would say is that notwithstanding... Those parts of God's word and God's law that have only applied to particular people at particular times in particular ways, notwithstanding that, the law that that God gave to Israel to govern their society is a model that ought to be followed in large part by all human societies. In other words, that the law God gave to Israel in the Old Testament was not just for Israel at that time but was rather a picture of what a just society ought to look like if it is obedient to the Lord as God. So let's begin working through these points with that in mind. The first first observation that he makes is this. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are, in part and in whole, a verbal revelation from God through human words being infallibly true regarding all that they teach on any subject. I don't think that there's anything there that ought to be controversial at all. I I think that's what all conservative, orthodox Christians believe. We don't believe just that the Bible is a book about God. We don't believe just that the Bible is a book from God. We believe that the Bible is the very Word of God written down. That it is God's breath that it is given to the holy apostles and prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Peter says, so that what they wrote was not their own ideas, it was not their own thoughts, it it was expressed in their own style. God could work through those men as true penmen, as true authors of Scripture, and yet what came out of their pen was, in fact, the living Word of God. And that it is true in everything that it teaches. This conviction includes all of Scripture, every part of Scripture, and the entire content of Scripture. Now, what do we mean by that? You are supposed to believe that the book of Leviticus is just as much the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and abiding Word of God as you believe that the book of Romans is. Now, you can believe that there are things in Leviticus that don't apply in a one-to-one fashion to a Christian living in the United States today as it might have applied to the Israelites in the Old Testament. That's fair. But nevertheless, you are to believe that everything in your Bible is just as much the Word of God as any other part of it is. That we don't have a canon within the canon. 
that we don't have some parts of Scripture that we uphold as if this is really God's Word, and this other part is kind of God's Word, but not as much for us anymore. I was talking to a friend of mine recently about several of these things, and we were observing how pervasively we have been influenced by dispensational theology. And when I say we, I mean we're talking globally, like all of us in the West. We don't realize how dispensational we are in the way that we approach Scripture. I think that's because many of us have associated dispensationalism with a particular eschatology. And for me, at least, I never embraced a dispensational eschatology. I grew up in a family that was amillennial. I never believed that there was going to be an invisible rapture of the church or a seven-year period of earthly tribulation. I didn't believe in multiple resurrections. I didn't believe that Jesus was coming back more than once. And so because I rejected a dispensational premillennial eschatology, if you had said to me five or ten years ago, you're very dispensational in the way that you read the Bible, I would have said, no way. The reality is, dispensationalism is more than just a view of the end times. Dispensationalism is a system of understanding scripture and redemptive history, and the truth is, a lot of Christians are more dispensational than they realize, including a lot of Reformed Christians today. The way that they relate the Old and New Testaments the way that they relate the law of Moses and the Mosaic economy, the way in which God works with Old Testament Israel to the larger scheme of redemption is in many times, in many ways, more dispensational than truly covenantal. We need to be careful of that. I grew up believing that all of Scripture was the inspired Word of God, but I believed that two-thirds of the Bible was really just historical record. That the Old Testament was God's word, was God's law, but it wasn't really God's law for us today. That was found in the New Testament. The Old Testament was to give us historical context for how God had dealt with his people in the past, but really it was the New Testament that we were supposed to focus upon. We were to follow the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. And I suspect that whether you put it that way or not, many of you grew up thinking something along those lines as well that we wanted to be New Testament Christians. Well, as far as that goes, that's perfectly fine. But you know that the early church didn't have an Old and New Testament. They had a Bible. They had what we call the Old Testament as Scripture, and then they were adding Scripture as the apostles wrote more of what we now call the New Testament. But they didn't have something like we do here today to be able to delineate between what was former and what is current. And they would not have understood that distinction that we often make. Every part of Scripture is the Word of God. That includes the genealogies. That includes those two pesky chapters in Leviticus that are about skin tests for leprosy that nobody wants to read, right? That includes all of Deuteronomy. That includes the book of Job. That includes the book of Ecclesiastes. Every part of Scripture is God's Word. It doesn't all relate to us, or maybe we should say we don't relate to every part of it in exactly the same way, and yet it is all the Word of God, and therefore everything that we read at the beginning of our study tonight about its power, its efficacy, its preciousness, is true of it as well. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as you're reading through your Bible day after day, and you come to that part of Scripture that you just think, what? 
What benefit is this to me? I'm just going to skim or skip this part. Well, I want you to believe that every Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable for the people of God because that's what your Bible says. And in fact, it's your New Testament that says it. And I want you to understand that when we say this about the Bible, we're talking about the entire content of Scripture. The infallible truth of Scripture, the infallibility, in other words, the fact that it cannot err, it cannot lead us astray, pertains to its record and to its propositions. Now, why are we making a distinction there? The Bible contains uh, the lies that Satan told Eve in the garden. It it includes the, the misdeeds of many villains throughout the history of redemption. And it, it records those things accurately. It's not to say that every word that the devil or some other false prophet in the Bible spoke is a true word, but it is truly recorded. It's accurately recorded. In other words, Scripture is infallible in its historical record that it maintains, and it is infallible in all of the propositions that it affirms. What is a proposition? It's a truth claim. It's a statement of fact. And every time the Bible says something is the way that it is, you can believe, you must believe, that that is more true than whatever modern commentators or scientists or whatever may say about it. This is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. He says, your word is truth and is the means by which the people of God are sanctified. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. That's what Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. This is the doctrine affirmed by our confession of faith and our larger catechism. Secondly, since the fall, it has always been unlawful to use the law of God in hopes of establishing one's own personal merit and justification. Salvation comes by way of promise and faith. Commitment to obedience is the lifestyle of faith, a token of gratitude for God's redeeming grace. I said a minute ago that we are more dispensational than we realize, and this is one of the places where you find find out that that's true. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Were any of them saved by obeying the law? Now, you know immediately that you're supposed to say no, but, you're, but, but that's more true than you realize. Yes, you're supposed to say no, because not only were none of them sup- ever saved by keeping the law, none of them were ever supposed to be saved in that way. There is a thought, including in the Reformed community, that says God gave the law that he gave to Israel in order to demonstrate to them that they could not keep it. In other words, that when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the law given through Moses was a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death engraved on stones. That was God's purpose for that law. Well, that's one way of reading that passage. God gave the law to Israel in order to cause them to stumble, in order to condemn them, in order to demonstrate fully and finally that salvation could never be obtained in that way. And, so the thinking goes, That law was presented to Israel in such a way as to teach them to seek justification and righteousness by their obedience so that they would know it was impossible. Now, 
There's a lot of theological writing that's gone into that. There are a lot of pastors in our denomination and others that would teach something along that line. But I want to suggest to you another way of thinking about this. In the book of Romans, Paul labors to demonstrate that God has always saved people in the same way and that he has always intended to do so. For example, in Romans chapter 4, you can see in Paul's argument three steps or stages by which he illustrates this principle of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He uses Abraham in verse 2, he uses David in verse 6, and he uses the Christians to whom he's writing. In other words, he uses an example before the law of Moses... He uses an example from under the law of Moses, that's David, and then he uses an example from after the law of Moses. And what does he say? God saves people exactly the same way in every dispensation, in every generation. Abraham was saved the same way David was saved, is saved the same way that you are saved. Paul turns to Psalm 32 in Romans 4, that's what he's quoting from in verses 7 and 8, He turns to Psalm 32 to demonstrate the gospel that he is preaching to the nations. A gospel that announces that God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't save people by their works. He doesn't save people by their ethnicity. He doesn't save people by the religion that they have subscribed to. He saves people through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's always been that way. When the Bible talks in the New Testament about dying to the law, about setting aside the law, turning away from the law, not under law, but under grace, is it setting forth something new? Or is it teaching people what the law itself was meant to teach them all along? What was the original purpose of the law? I think the law itself tells us. For example, Psalm 143 and verse 2, it shows us that righteousness cannot come by means of law-keeping. In Psalm 130 that we read a couple of weeks ago on our Lord's Day morning service, uh, David says, If you, O Lord, should count iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The law is not trying to get God's people to falter and fail so that they will look for another option. The law was leading them to Christ. And not by condemning them, but rather by instructing them. That's what has always been the case. The Judaizers misunderstood this, and they misapplied God's law. You see this as well in the Pharisees in the New Testament. Is Jesus changing the fundamental precepts of the law that had been given to Israel in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you? Or is he correcting their misapplication and error? The third use of the law in kind of classical Reformed theology has always been as a rule of life as a rule of gratitude. Do you remember the three uses of the law? Sometimes they're numbered different ways, but kind of the classic way that we think of it is the first use of the law is to convict us of our sin, to convict us of our sin, to crush our pride, to to cause us to recognize our condemnation, and to drive us to the cross. That's the first use of the law, right? Mike Myers in Georgia likes to say that that first use of the law is like a searchlight 
It's finding the fugitive, right? The police helicopter is chasing him down, and the spotlight is cast upon him. It's a great analogy, right? The second use of the law is to curb evil in society. The law that's written upon every person's heart, the moral consciousness that we all have, people are totally depraved, but not utterly depraved. Not even Hitler kicked every dog that he walked past. And not, he didn't push every old woman into traffic when he saw one, right? Uh, he's, he's thoroughly sinful, but he's not as sinful as he could possibly be. In other words, even the most wicked person doesn't do every wicked thing that he possibly could do. And what is that restraining influence? The second use of the law. The second use of the law. It's like the stoplight. It's like the caution light in an intersection that says, hey, slow down. Slow down. Watch it. What's the third use of the law? The third use of the law is the use that says the law of God is how we ought to live in faith and love and gratitude to God. That third use of the law is like a pair of headlights on the car. It shows us the way we're going. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Again, these are, these are Mike's categories. I'm ripping that completely off of him, but it's really, really good. It's a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. It shows me the way that I'm going so that I know how I ought to live, and it is a blessing. In keeping them, there is great reward, right? Psalm 19, like we were reading before. Now, which of those uses of the law is primary? Don't be confused by the way that we number them and think that the first use of the law is the primary use of the law, because after all, it is first. That's what Luther said, but Luther, with all due respect, was wrong. Calvin acknowledged that the third use of the law was always the primary use of the law. You'll notice the quote, uh, it's on the back of your handout. This is from Institutes of the Christian Faith, Book 2, Chapter 7, Article 12. He says this, quote, The third use of the law being also the principal use and more closely connected with its proper end has respect to believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. For although the law is written and engraven on their hearts by the finger of God, that is, although they are so influenced and actuated by the Spirit that they desire to obey God, there are two ways in which they still profit in the law. For it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is which they aspire to follow and to confirm them in this knowledge. Just as a servant who desires with all his soul to approve himself to his master must still observe and be careful to ascertain his master's dispositions that he may comport himself in accommodation to them. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity. For none have as yet attained to such a degree of wisdom as that they may not, by the daily instruction of the law, advance to a purer knowledge of the divine will. Then, because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. By frequently meditating upon it, he will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it, and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin." In this way must the saints press onward, since, however great the alacrity with which, under the Spirit, they hasten toward righteousness, they are retarded by the sluggishness of the flesh and make less progress than they ought. The law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as men do a lazy, sluggish ass. Even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he is still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus, pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth." 
So Calvin says there are two main ways that we benefit from this third use of the law. First of all, it teaches us what God's will is. You want to be obedient to God, but what are you supposed to do? What is it God wants you to do? The law teaches you that. You don't look within your heart to figure that out. You don't try to intuit that from your own resources or wisdom. You look to the law of God. He, you, don't want to, you don't need to be creative. God tells you what he wants from you, right? And so when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we praying? We're praying that God's revealed will, his law, would be done in this world, and it starts in my heart and my life. The law teaches me what that is. Secondly, it excites me in that. It motivates me in that. It disciplines me in that. I, don't want, I want to be obedient, but I, but I kind of don't want to be obedient. I, I, I want to do what's, what's right, but, but later, right? After I've had a few more cups of coffee. But, but the law, it, it drives us forward. It keeps us moving forward. It keeps us disciplined in that way. Calvin says this is the proper use of the law. This is the, this is the original purpose. This is the primary intention of God's law is for believers who have been made alive by the Spirit of God. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, Paul says. And then he says, knowing that the law is not made for a righteous person, and you say, wait, well, wait a second, Paul says the law is not made for a righteous person. And Calvin says that's the primary thing that the law was made for. How, how do you reconcile these two? Well, understand that Paul is talking about the law as it identifies that which is contrary to the character of God and harmful to man. The law is like a fence around a garden. The law is not there to harm. It is there to protect. It is there to bless. It's for our good always, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The law is not there to condemn, to shame, to wound the believer, it does have that effect on the unbeliever. It does have that effect on the disobedient. But Calvin says the law is ultimately for our good. And that is how it has always been. What was the purpose of the law that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? Was it to condemn them? Was it to shame them? No. It, did it do that? Sure, it did when they violated that law. But what was the original purpose of the law from creation? It was to bless them. It was to lead them in obedience, lead them in righteousness. What about God giving the law to Israel after the Exodus? In the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Was that law to condemn them? Was it to shame them? It did that when they broke it. But what was the purpose of it? It was to be a blessing to them. It was to set them apart from the nations and lead them in a way of holiness in keeping them, there is great reward. Your life is better when you're playing inside the fence that surrounds the garden rather than when you're trying to climb over the fence in order to get out of the garden and go play in traffic. Does everybody understand that? So since the fall, since Genesis 3, it has never been the case that anyone was to justify himself by the law. That's not the law's purpose. The law is good if you use it lawfully. And what is the lawful use of it? Well, to convict and condemn the unbelieving, sure. To curb evil in human society, yes. But preeminently, to teach us what God wants from us and to discipline and motivate us in doing that out of faith and love and gratitude. 
It is not a ladder by which we climb up to heaven. It's not a ziggurat by which we move and ascend up into the heavens so that we might seat ourselves among the gods. The law is the way of life. It's a rule of faith that is intended to show our gratefulness. Third, the word of the Lord is the sole, supreme, and unchallengeable standard for the actions and attitudes of everyone in all areas of life. This word naturally includes God's moral directives or God's moral law. There shouldn't be anything controversial about that. How do you know what is right and wrong? Why are you offended and concerned by the evil in this world? We just sang from Psalm 119, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. That presupposes that they're supposed to. That when we see violence and injustice, immorality and idolatry in the broader world, it grieves us because we know this is not for man's good. This is not for man's flourishing. Chicago is like a war zone. That's That's a tragic thing. Why is it that way? Because men don't obey God. God's word is the standard for determining what attitudes, what actions are right and which are not. And that includes his moral law. In Romans chapter 1, it's a passage that you know well, Paul says it doesn't take special revelation for us to be able to say this. You can simply say it from the natural revelation of creation and providence. Verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. They were not thankful. How do you know what is right and wrong in this world? You know because God has made himself known. We have a revelational epistemology. Now, that's a big fancy word. It just means that we know what we know by God's revelation. Reason does not exist independent of God. So you can't rely upon reason. Evidence does not have neutrality disconnected from God in the world that he's made. Everyone has presuppositions. We know what we know Because God has made himself known. And that's how we know what is right and what is wrong. That is why human beings feel obligation and why they feel shame, as we talked about last week. God's righteousness is the standard of judgment for all desires, thoughts, attitudes, and acts. And yes, God's law governs the desires of our heart the thoughts of our mind that we never act upon. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you could say, yep, but Lord, he didn't act on that. Nobody even knew about that. The Lord knew. And his law is the standard by which that internal attitude is governed. 
And this is why we have to understand that our problem with sin is not just the deeds that we have done or periodically do. If you could simply, uh, you know, if, if you could just control your behavior and not outwardly transgress God's law, you would still need Jesus. Because inwardly, we have not measured up to the standard of righteousness seen in the incarnate Son of God. Now, obviously, we're not ever going to get to the point in this life where we even constrain ourselves from transgressing God's commandments. But you see that God wants more from us than just that external conformity. What does our shorter catechism say? Question 14. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What does want of conformity mean? It means insofar as you don't measure up to Jesus, that is sinful. You don't have to say bad words. You don't have to do bad things. Do you desire purely, truly, only the will of God as Jesus did? Do you think sincerely, purely, constantly, only things that are good, holy, right, and true as Jesus did? And if not, then you need a Savior. We're in sin. And the Word of God is what ultimately establishes that standard. So that you and I can't say, I measure up pretty well in comparison to this other person. Do you understand why this is important for a Christian ethic? Is My goal is not just to be better than my neighbor. My goal is to be like Jesus. The Word of God is reminding me constantly that I am not. And then number four, and this is the last point tonight. Our obligation to keep the law of God cannot be judged by any extra-scriptural standard, such as whether its specific requirements are congenial to past traditions or modern feelings and practices. We have an obligation to God's law that transcends the circumstances in which we find ourselves, or the situation, or the culture. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 15... When Jesus is criticized because his disciples are not washing their hands before they eat, right? My mother had the same tradition. Verse 1 of Matthew 15, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus turns it right back around on them. Verse 3, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? They, they viewed the tradition of the elders as equivalent to a divine obligation. By the way, this is still true of modern Orthodox Judaism. There are two levels of obligation, right? The oral law doesn't have the same level of authority as the written Torah, but it still constitutes a divine obligation. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And so they come to Jesus and they say, your disciples are doing what's wrong, and he says, Actually, they're not, but you are. You're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. That's wrong. And you are setting aside the commandment of God in preference for your own tradition. That's wronger, right? God does not obligate us according to the situation, the culture that is determined by men. He ultimately obligates us based upon his law. And this is really important for understanding Christian liberty, for example. 
the circumstances in which I find myself, the situation where I am, might teach me that certain things are wise at a given point in time. I might choose to refrain from certain liberties that I have. I might find it useful to participate in certain strictures of the community where I am laboring. Paul says, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. But the minute someone comes in and says, Titus, as a Gentile, has to be circumcised in order to be saved, Paul says, not going to happen. Not going to happen. But the, but the Bible says that they have to be circumcised. That's the ceremonial law, and it doesn't apply to the Gentiles. That's, that's what Paul says. And we're going to get to that kind of thing in the next couple of weeks. Our obligation to keep the law of God cannot be judged by any extra-scriptural standard. And sometimes those standards say it's okay because everybody does it. For example, that was the situation after the return from exile. Ezra and Nehemiah both have to deal with this, where the Jews were marrying unbelievers. The problem is not that they were marrying foreigners. If you read that passage and you think, oh, there's some kind of ethnic bigotry here, there's ethnic vainglory going on. No, that's not the issue. The problem is not that they were marrying people who had been born in another country or another culture. The problem is that they were marrying unbelievers. And the law of God said that was wrong. But a lot of them had been doing it for a considerable period of time, including some of the priests. But it didn't change what God's word had to say. This is why we saw on Sunday morning in Deuteronomy chapter 5 the prescription of a type of holy war when Israel came into the promised land. They were to make war on the Canaanites, destroy their altars, destroy their idols, not intermarry with their children. Why? Because they would lead their hearts away. And the way that you ought to live is not determined by that culture. It's determined by the law of God. The believer's conscience is captive to the word of God and that alone. It is the only ultimate standard. Now, what does that mean? And specifically, what does it mean for the purposes of our study tonight? It means that you should never be embarrassed by the Bible. And yet, aren't we sometimes tempted to be? I mean, don't we sometimes... It happened this last Sunday, if you paid attention, right? Where we come to a part of Scripture, and we're reading through the Bible, and you say, Pastor, why in the world are we reading Deuteronomy chapter 22 aloud in a mixed company service, and this is really politically incorrect, and... Well, we read chapter 22 this last Sunday because the week before that we read chapter 21, and then this coming Sunday we're going to read chapter 23, and right in between those two is chapter 22. That's why we did that. You're not supposed to be embarrassed by the Bible because to be embarrassed by the Bible would be to suggest that you have some kind of moral high ground by which to judge the Bible, and you don't. Scripture is the high ground. God has taken the high ground. We know what we know by what he has revealed. And yet there are parts of the law that even Christians today wince at, squirm at, imagine are just very politically incorrect and outdated, but I would simply ask you what part of that is unjust? Now, I'm not talking about the stories that are hard to read. Obviously, there are stories that are hard to read because they've got sinful, wicked things happening in them. All of us wince at those places. I'm talking about the parts of God's law that regulate things that we might think ought to be other than they are. Which instructions have we outgrown morally? 
Which part of God's law have we transcended in our moral discernment? Did you know that, that is, there is a thought in theology and Christian philosophy today that there, that there is a trajectory hermeneutic, is what it's called. It's a way of recognizing that the Bible is establishing a trajectory of morality so that eventually, on that trajectory, we will outgrow even specific instructions that we find in the Word of God. The most common examples are that in the Old Testament, God regulates the practice of slavery. In the New Testament, He governs the relationship between slaves and masters, but we all know that slavery is inherently immoral and that it eventually would be overturned by the preaching of the gospel, which, as a matter of fact, it was. Did you notice that all of the West decided that slavery was immoral when it was thoroughly Christianized? Probably just a coincidence, right? And they infer from that that there are various moral trajectories in Scripture. For example, in the Bible, God didn't allow women to be priests or preachers. But we know now, based upon the equality of the sexes, that female ordination is perfectly fine. In the Bible, for example, there was opposition to homosexuality. But we know now, from what we know, thanks to the LGBTQ community, that, that those kind of alternative sexualities are perfectly accepted. That is actually the argument that's being made. What's interesting is to see people who subscribe to a trajectory hermeneutic who want to say yes to female ordination and no to homosexuality, but find that they have no ground to stand on. You can't be embarrassed with any part of the Bible. You can't say that you outgrow any part of God's moral instructions. You have to be content with the Word of God and recognize that your obligation is the Word of God, not to what is current, whether it says more or less than what God's Word might. Cornelius Van Til in his classic work, Christian Apologetics, said this, and I've quoted it many times. I probably will keep quoting it until I die or you ask me to go elsewhere. He says, quote, The Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. End quote. And I think there's a lot of Christians who would say, no, it doesn't. In fact, I know for a fact that I've got a journal article sitting on my desk right now that by a minister who I have a lot of respect for who says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> the you know, Scripture is only sufficient for matters of faith and worship. It's insufficient beyond that. But I would simply suggest to you that does not seem to me to be the teaching of Scripture. It does not seem to me to be our Reformed tradition. Rather, the Bible speaks of everything. No, it doesn't tell you how to change the oil in your car. It doesn't tell you how to make a shoe. It doesn't tell you how to do a lot of the things that we do in this present world, but it tells you how to be a person in this world doing all of those things to the glory of God. And I believe it does establish an ethic that governs us in everything that we do, everywhere that we go. Uh, our time is up. I'm going to allow for some questions, but let me just take you back to one other quote on the back of your handout that I did not take time to read. There's more there uh, that you can look at on your own. But that middle quote, it is from uh, Dr. Bonson's essay in which these 12 points, summary points are found. He said this, quote, if we allow the Bible to interpret itself and not infuse it with a preconceived theological antithesis between Old and New Covenant, law and gospel, we are compelled to conclude that the Old Covenant, indeed the Mosaic law, 
was a covenant of grace that offered salvation on the basis of grace through faith, just as does the good news found in the New Testament. The difference was that the Mosaic or law covenant looked ahead to the coming of the Savior, thus administering God's covenants by means of promises, prophecies, ritual ordinances, types, and foreshadowings that anticipated the Savior and His redeeming work. The gospel or the new covenant proclaims the accomplishment of that which the law anticipated, administering God's covenant through preaching and the sacraments. The substance of God's saving relationship and covenant is the same under the law and the gospel. Scripture does not present the Mosaic or law covenant as fundamentally opposed to the grace of the new covenant, an erroneous view, essentially dispensational in orientation, that is at the heart of so much misguided thinking about the law today. For example, consider Hebrews 3 and 4. According to the New Testament, why was God displeased with the Israelites so that they could not enter the promised land? The answer is that they were disobedient, Hebrews 3.18. But this is the same as to answer that they were lacking faith, Hebrews 3.19. They had the gospel preached to them even as we do, Hebrews 4.2. But they failed to enter into God's promised provision because they failed to have faith, Hebrews 4.2. That is, they were guilty of disobedience, Hebrews 4.6. You cannot pit faith and obedience against each other in the Old Covenant. They are different sides of the same coin, just as in the New Covenant, James 2, 14 to 26, end quote. And I think that that's helpful, is to say, as we've said many times before, law and gospel are to be distinguished but not divorced, not separated, not pitted against one another. And you're not to do that with regard to the concepts of law and gospel, and you're not to do that with the parts of the Bible that people often think of as law and gospel. So that is the second step in our kind of four-part series on Christian ethics. I'll open it up for any questions if you've got them, and then um, I'll open it up for any questions, and uh, then we'll pray before we go. And, you know, even though we don't have something exactly like the book of Leviticus in the New Testament, right, God hasn't chosen to regulate every aspect of our society in the same detailed way that he does in Israel under the ceremonial law, it still is communicating something to us about God's character, about God's nature, about the meticulous sovereignty of Christ as Lord of all of life, right? Um, So in that way, it's instructing us about Jesus and about our relationship with him. It's not something we can just easily set aside or ignore. So I would not, I would not say uh, outgrow. What I would say is that people, slavery was ubiquitous throughout all of human history in every human civilization and is to this day outside of Christianized nations. And in the West, countries realized that slavery was immoral and it was unjust for us to be doing the things that we're doing about the same time that they heard the gospel and became Christianized, right? So slavery as an institution has has just been found everywhere throughout world history. And it wasn't so much that we needed a trajectory hermeneutic to realize, well, God regulated this, but, but now we can realize we never should have had it to begin with. It was that by regulating it, God was creating a moral context in which it would become irrelevant because slavery, as it had always been practiced, was structurally immoral. And when you begin conducting these relationships in society and in an economy in a moral godly way, well, guess what? You just end up getting rid of slavery, right? You've undercut the institution as, as a whole. Does that make sense? So it's not as if God permits something here, and now we know that what he permitted was wrong. It's that when you begin following his precepts here, it fundamentally changes the structure of society, and that 
that regulation becomes irrelevant. You could have um, a practice of slavery that was not inherently immoral. I mean, Philemon and Onesimus. Paul sends Onesimus back, which, by the way, the law of Moses doesn't require him to do, right? Does not require him to do. But he sends him back. He's not sending him back to an immoral situation, right? There was a way for a Christian to be a godly slave owner and for a Christian to be a godly servant slave, right, to a master. But, but when you begin Christianizing everyone, guess what? Slavery just goes away. Because in most nations, not all, most nations obtain slaves in ways that were actually capital crimes, through kidnapping or through you know, something like that, man-stealing and, and uh, chattel slavery like we had in, in America. And when you begin bringing the word of God to bear on those institutions, they go away. Right? People begin repenting of that. So it's not a trajectory hermeneutic. It's the outworking of a Christian ethic. And, and a just system like what we find in the Old Testament law would be something much more like indentured servitude. It would not be like the chattel slavery that we found in most, most countries of the West. Because it becomes almost irrelevant. Uh, again, what I'm saying is that as societies began embracing a biblical worldview and biblical law as the foundation of their society, the kinds of slavery that they were practicing were eradicated, just naturally. Okay? Now, I don't think that indentured servitude, which is a type of slavery, is fundamentally unjust. It could be practiced in an unjust way. Obviously, we can do anything in an unjust way. But structurally, it's not unjust. But even that, most societies eventually abandoned. Did they have to do that? Nope, absolutely not. Uh, We have radical egalitarian political theories that kind of lead us to make, uh, to to be outspoken about the the structural injustice of that kind of a relationship. That's not unjust. Uh, Biblical law would forbid chattel slavery, right? And, And ultimately remove the foundations of a lot of the slavery that you saw in the West. But there could be all kinds of servant-master-bond-servant relationships that could be regulated by the law of God, were in the first century churches, and could be a blessing to, to both parties. Yeah, I don't know if we want to say we believe right now, but theonomy generally understood would say that the law of human societies should be patterned upon and consistent with the law of God as revealed in Scripture. Typically, people who are more theonomic are going to be more optimistic in their eschatology. It doesn't have to be. There are some who are optimistic and who are not theonomic, and there are some who are theonomic that are not optimistic, but generally they go together. So that is, that's part two. And again, hopefully, maybe, I don't know, you can tell me. Maybe that was more interesting than a dialogue from Plato. But... Uh, you see everywhere we're going. So if you see something you just don't like, you know, you can do something else on a Wednesday night. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to go over 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we're going to do it kind of the same way with some proof text and some amplification, and then we'll cover uh, the last four, uh, the last Wednesday night, and, uh, and then we'll move on to some other material for this summer.